Elizabeth, how's it coming? It's difficult to say. I'm told it's the latest fashion in London. Well, women in London must have learnt not to breathe. I'm gonna teach you the meaning of pain. You like pain? <laughs> Try wearing a corset. Said I'm Katya uh, hosting this week because we're having a. Um, we'll just say we'll have a, we're having an episode topic that Mav knows maybe not nothing about, but very little. Uh, but this is the academic roundtable show with drinking and swearing. Um, I am, as I said, I'm Katya Gorecki, and I'm joined by Hannah today. How you doing, Hannah? You know, it's it's yeah. like it's the time. I watched the Bake Off. I cried over the Bake Off. It's fine. Yeah, it's de- it's definitely that. So we're really excited to have one of our very uh, few uh, no no dudes allowed episodes, actually, which I'm very interested. In. So the reason that's happening is because um, on recently on my uh, YouTube feed there were a series of videos from a bunch of historical fashion recreators, vintage folks, basically debunking corsets, basically talking about how course like how the the, the idea or the myth that uh, corsets harm women um is in fact false and that basically that this was often used at various points in history as a political statement against women's rights or women's suffrage seeking to basically delegitimize traditional forms of femininity and particularly fashion so these things show up in my feed because i'm a sewing person and i like a lot of the vintage however i have really no professional expertise uh to really know whether that's accurate what our guests today do I'm going to allow them to introduce themselves really quickly. Uh, so first we have Carolyn Day. Hi, everybody. Um, I am a historian of 18th and 19th century Britain um, and historian of medicine. And actually, I work on the connections between beauty, fashion, and disease in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. That is one of the cooler specialties I've ever heard of. It's just very exciting. Very cool. <laughs> uh, we also have Laura Engel. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Laura Engel. Um, I am a professor of English at Duquesne University, uh, and I work on 18th and 19th century British theater and actresses and celebrity in particular. I'm also interested in fashion and material culture. And Cheryl Spinner. Um, Hi, everyone. Um, My name is Cheryl Spinner, and I am a professor at the University of Maryland. I focus on uh, 19th century American literature primarily and its intersection um, between the occult and magic. I'm here really um, as a high femme academic who uh, wears all this stuff um, and to talk about uh, what that means as as someone who participates in the vintage community and uh, is a feminist and uh, queer and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I guess bringing my my opinion right um, from like, you know, actually doing this stuff. So mm-hmm. that's all. Awesome. So to kind of get it started, I kind of I guess wanted to ask about two of the central premises of this YouTube kind of, you know, uh, deep dive that I did and kind of like get your guys' thoughts as people who know way more about this than I do, basically. Uh, so the two claims that I saw repeated most often is one that like basically corsets, you know, there's this modern belief that corsets are bad for you is not correct when they're worn properly. Um, and maybe emphasis on the word on the phrase worn properly. It's kind of like one question of whether or not that is that is a fair statement. And then the second one, I think, is like this idea of like the corsets were used to as a way to like attack women about their intellect and their ability to be involved in politics. And is that a fair statement about the history of this particular garment? Well, I think there's a lot kind of going on there. Um, and I'll sort of throw my hat in the ring first, I guess. Um, one of the things that, that I think we have to think about when we think about are corsets dangerous or not, or are they uncomfortable or not, um, and are they just not properly fitted for kind of historic movies, and that's why people complain about them. Um, so we can't treat it as a monolithic monolithic thing. Instead, um, we have so many different styles and so many different time periods, and the shape really varies, and the shape really 
kind of makes a difference on what it does to the body, the way in which the body is sort of manipulated. So um, it's one of the things we kind of have to tease out a little bit is to, when we think about corset, are we talking about like 18th century stays? Are we talking about corsets at sort of the early part of the 19th century, which are not very heavily boned and tend to have um, a little less sort of restriction on the shape? And as we see technical innovations in the middle and later part of the 19th century, that's going to shift. And it also means the ways in which the corset and body interact changes as well. I think that's an amazing point, Carolyn. And I, I what's what's super interesting about looking at different time periods in through the late 18th to the 19th century is that the context of how the corset looks on the body is so different. Um, Carolyn was just served as one of the experts uh, for an exhibition that I curated with Amelia Rouser at the Lewis Walpole Library called Artful Nature, Fashion and Theatricality. Um, and that show was talking about the Regency period, you know, like Jane Austen, empire dresses, corsets, but not corsets. Like, you know, you were wearing underwear, but no boning um, and the kind of freedom that that kind of dress allowed. But both the positive aspects of that freedom and also the backlash uh, afforded by that kind of, you know, women running around in dresses that look like nightgowns. Um, so I just wanted to second Carolyn's idea that, you know, it depends on exactly what period you're talking about. Um, and this kind of contradiction between restriction and freedom is something that goes throughout discussions of corsets and corsetry. Yeah, I'd like to piggyback on what Carolyn said, um, because I'm someone who enjoys wearing corsets for certain outfits, um, especially if they're retro and I want my waist to be a little bit more exaggerated. Um, I hadn't really thought about the history of the corset necessarily. Um, you know, I'm part of the corset community. So so-called corset community, you know, corporate corset is a great place um, to get corsets at. I'm not getting any uh, money from that. Um, Hashtag not spawn. Yeah, not, 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 not <laughs> sponsored. Yes, yes. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm I'm used to a very particular kind of corset. It'd be interesting to, to from, from historians to know what kind of corset this is and what kind of corset contemporary uh, corset wearers are wearing because there's all this talk about seasoning and um, like uh, and breaking them in. And was that something that uh, applied to these older corsets? Because once you season them, mm -hmm. they start to just meld to your body. In a lot of ways, they, they improve your posture. They can, they can be very comfortable. Um, it, also, if you have lower back pain. So that's kind of interesting. I didn't think about, you know, the evolution of the corset itself and what kind of I'm wearing when I do wear one. Yeah, I wonder if we should almost back up a little bit, since I know especially a significant part of our listenership is male uh, and probably the limited experience, of course, it's some stereotyping. You never know. <laughs> make that assumption is for many of our listeners. Like, I guess... I, like like Cheryl, I've only you know I've I've worn a corset on occasion. I've only ever worn modern corsets, and often usually what's probably closer to like 1950s girdles. So I guess like we just have used to like what what is a corset? And also I think Cheryl's point, what is what can you describe what also is seasoning? Well, I can tackle the the sort of what is a corset, what is a stay, or sort of brief description. So stay tended to be the terminology used for the body kind of modification garment. Oh, that's not really body modification, though it does. Um, say the garment of the 18th century and, and kind of before. But these tended to be more conical in shape and less about mm. to the body and more about um, sort of forcing a particular shape on the body. So if you've ever seen portraits of the, of the wives of the founding fathers and they look very triangular in shape, they tend to be wearing stays. And stays, um, uh, and even sort of in, into the kind of early part of the 19th century, stays and it's tended to be boned with a variety of materials, depending on where you are geographically. I mean, anything even um, could have been used, but also the sort of major material was baking or whalebone. And so this is from the um, that are large kind of filter feeders, the, the part that has um, that catches the fish in their mouth. Mm -hmm. And it's very, it's almost a keratin like material and it, it can be steamed. It can be molded. It can be shaped. And so it does sort of begin to form to the body the more you wear it. Um, and so there is some of that. It does kind of take on that. It is malleable. Um, and there's usually also stiffening in the 18th century in between the layers as well. So you'll have boning as well as stiffening. 
it depends on on what layer of um, dress you're wearing as well. So if you're talking court dress, that's far more um, restrictive and elaborate than everyday dress, that kind of thing. As you move into the latter part of the 18th century and as we move into the 19th century, that kind of Jane Austen style that Laura had mentioned earlier, um, there's this big controversy of do corsets disappear at all? Um, they're definitely not the same shape. They're definitely changing. Um, and to see sort of either women getting rid of them for a while or not everybody looks really good in um, a nightgown as they're wandering. <laughs> some of them, it can some be really cold and uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. Some people need a little bit more support than that or maybe are not so young and willowy. And so there were still all of these caricatures that point to the fact that a long stay was still something that was in use. And there are surviving examples. As you move into kind of the, the 18th, in 30s, we have corsets that um, were primarily better boned than the later kind of additions. So in particular, we would have a, a, a central that would run down the front to help stiffen. And they would have a lot of kind of cording as well as minimal boning. So they would have some boning, but kind of as much as later on. You also... Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have the ability to be kind of tightly laced as the kind of complaint comes later. So the complaints on corseting are partly about corsets, but partly also about the practice of tightening. And these kind of get conflated together in the 19th century sometimes, but um, complain about tight lacing rather than actually. I also I also think that, um, you know, that when we think of corsets now, we're probably thinking more about sort of mid to late 19th century corsets, like the kind that you can really kind of, you know, lace tight, tight and, you know, so everything from the stereotype of, you know, Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind to um, Empress Cece. I don't know if any, all of you know who the Empress, Empress Cece, the Empress of Austria, who was basically a, a celebrity pinup queen like Princess Diana uh, in the late 19th century who had a 19-inch waist um, and was photographed and um, all over the place and had her, you know, her portrait, images of her portrait by Winterthaler and others were, um, you know, copied in the newspapers. And uh, she was a fashion icon. Um, so I think that some of that sort of, it's incredible how tiny your waist is and how restrictive and um, unusual and ridiculous that must have been comes from these like images of very um, iconic women in the late 19th century. Absolutely. Yeah. My wonder about um, the, what was her name again? Empress Cece. Yeah. So um, that, that uh, fabulous lady. Um, <laughs> I don't have to Google this later. She's amazing. <laughs> she does sound amazing. I, I wonder what her original waistline was because yeah. a 19 inch waistline is not natural. It's um, insane. So what she did, she exercised, she, she created her own gym and exercised for seven to eight hours a day. And she rode horses for hours a day. She only ate raw eggs. It was very extreme. So she's a very interesting example. Yeah. Exactly. The other thing to to remember is how early you start wearing a corset makes a difference Mm. on that as well. So um, depending on when she started, that would make a difference how she moves forward. Yeah. And this is also making me think of like, so the example of like the the 19 inch waist at a queen. I mean, when I was going through some of the research on this, I saw a lot of people pointing out that like, especially when people talked about like corsets restricted mobility or were harmful was like this idea of like, well, then why were women who were doing manual labor wearing them? Because there were women like, and they showed a lot of pictures uh, of, well, I should say illustrations of women who would be like working in fields or working in shops, like on their feet, like all day. And they're wearing corsets as just like a normal undergarment. They are. So it's interesting, too, that the discourse about corsets is also very class based, um, at least in Britain. Uh, certainly, um, it may be different, elsewhere, but uh, that's the area I'm most familiar with. So I'll speak to that. But um, it, for instance, so we were talking about sort of 1830s and the 1840s corsets become incredibly restrictive and very heavily boned. And there's sort of this very brief period in which women's bodies are sort of 
they shape as um, people who have religious. And then there's a pushback against that by the 1850s. And so in the 1850s, there would be complaints by doctors as well as social theorists um, that uh, lower class women only ones who are doing this now, that middle and upper class women have, have seen the light and they are beginning to sort of have more healthy kind of um, approaches in their corseting. So there, there can be, um, there's a class dynamic that kind of comes into play, particularly in the latter part of the 19th century in the, in the discussion around corsets. So th- for that shift, like, I'm curious, is it was like, I guess, is that shift like a like, do you see that as a primarily cultural shift or was it was it like because of some very legitimate like medical information come to light about this practice or maybe well, the way that particular people were implementing this practice? That particular women are still wearing corsets. Um, the particular shift is in this in the style of the corset and a pushback. Mm-hmm is seen as um, an unhealthy or frail body um, that begins to sort of move forward. And what, in the 1840s, the corsets actually compressed the torso as a whole, not just the waist. And by the 1850s, we get this pushback for what, what were called healthy corsets. Uh, and they actually, we would look at them and probably not think they were healthy. People who kind of have that opinion about corsets would think they still maintained quite a narrow waist, but they allowed a freer respiration of the, of the, the lungs, which was what made them healthy. So the idea about the injurious pressure by physicians was primarily that it compressed the lungs and caused tuberculosis. So there was this thought that if you wore these things, it would compress your lungs and your ribcage and it would cause consumption as it was inevitable. And so we begin to see some real push for dress reform in the 1850s in um, uh, Britain. And Roxy Kaplan, who was uh, a British corsetier, in 1848 takes out a patent for a kind of genic or corporeform uh, corset. And in 1851, she exhibits this at the Great Exhibition. And this healthy corset, the, it still exists. It's actually in the collection at the Museum of London. And it is a display model with a 19-inch waist. So as actually have sort of the same kind of waist that uh, Empress Cece's would have had, but um, it was a display that was not meant necessarily reflective of um, somebody's actual um, form. So, and she actually is the only British corsetier to have won a medal at uh, the Great Exhibition. Ever, all the other ones were French corsetiers. So, there's to be that push. Yeah. Well, in that, you know, just thinking about the idea of corsets and whether or not they're comfortable. And um, there is a there's a fashion YouTuber. I think it's the Duchess who who does these great YouTube videos. And I just was talking about one of her videos dressing every day in 18th century clothing with my fashion and lit class, my freshmen. Uh, And in that video, she talks about the fact that she felt so much more comfortable wearing a corset because it allowed her to have a specific body shape um, and that her actual body was sort of separated from the shape of her outfit because of this kind of boning and padding and she she actually said, I never had a fat day, quote unquote, in my courses. Um, and the students were kind of amazed by that. Um, and, they're, you know, they're all sitting around in like sweatshirts and sweatpants and things like that, comfy mm-hmm. clothes. So, I mean, I'm just I'm wondering what other people think of think of that. And, you know, yes, there mm-hmm. he is. Yay. Oh, it's, <laughs> yeah. a, it's a fabulous uh, video. It's wonderful. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you'll find these well, uh, videos linked in the show notes as long as, and definitely check out, there's a few other ones uh, from our original blog post, so definitely check those out. Yeah, that sounds to me like you're pointing um, to, and I totally agree with it, the the body positivity um, uh, element of the corset, which I think that oftentimes it's rendered as in restrictive. Um, why would a woman want to wear a corset? Um, you know, it's bad for your body. Um, but actually women who, especially now, opt to wear corsets because they like the aesthetic of it. They like the way mm-hmm. that um, mm-hmm. their waist looks in a particular garment. And related to what you were talking about before, you are able to um, control how tight you want to um, mm-hmm. make your corset and the corset size and all that kind of stuff. So if you like it tighter, you can wear it tighter. If you like it looser, you can wear it looser. But it just exaggerates the waist. So you may want an extreme exaggeration like Dita Von Tees. She's like almost a nine, right. uh, maybe 21 inch, um, which is something that I would never do. I'm not interested in in getting that extreme. Um, 
I just like, you know, the hourglass 1950s kind of, you know, look um, in certain kinds of dresses. So, you know, I, I think that 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 point is really important that, you know, this is something that is not it is is a personal choice and it's also can be empowering. Um, yeah, yeah, I would echo that. I remember I got into a big argument with a, a women's studies professor that shall not be named uh, <laughs> over whether or not wearing corsetry could be something good practice and still call yourself a feminist. Because, I mean, and for me, it's in the context of like, I learned about feminism as a young girl, like, you know, in like basically middle school through vintage fashion blogs and sewing blogs, because I was sewing and I was learning, like was learning to sew and I was learning to sew specifically like vintage inspired fashion and women, like adult women who were people who I didn't, you know, I wasn't related to, like we're having these very candid conversations about feminism and politics, but also like how that related to their bodies. And I think for me, it's like, you know, what a lot of what Cheryl said is like, it's if, if a court, if, if the aesthetic of corsetry or the like wearing a corset appeals to you, it can totally be like a form of self-expression and it can be yeah. an empower, like an empowering thing. I mean, it's also just like, like I, I find them comfortable actually, <laughs> like, yeah, uh, which, which actually like, you know, it runs counter to a lot of the narratives. I think that are in like big mainstream, like contemporary media. Like I told Katya, I was going to bring this up. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, yeah. Like that. I think that that uh, like literally uh, Elizabeth Swan's characters, like feminist arc is tied to her like corset in a way, in like a negative way in that like it's the way she's she introduced. Yeah. She can't breathe in the corset. She uh, like, you know, it has to be ripped open when uh, Jack Sparrow saves her from drowning. At one point, she like hits a pirate villain and says, if you want pain, try wearing a corset. And, you know, of course, this movie's written by men. Um, sure. I mean, interestingly, also historically, I mean, to talk about sort of feminist academics and different ways to see things, you know, different people have interpreted Cece and her sort of manic exercising and, and corsetry as either the patriarchy, you know, you know, sort of constructed ideas of beauty, which she followed to an extreme, or she considered her body to be her own work of art and spent her whole life shaping and, um, you know, aesthetically sculpting herself to be what she wanted to be. Um, so that sort of that question of agency and power and um, is really, I think, still very, very important. Oh, no. It's, I, I, so I was just thinking, you know, I myself have being really interested in historic fashion corsets and also really interested in you know, trying to answer the question, what does this do to the body myself have put on? And and honestly, most of them are actually very quite comfortable. And I agree. I also think this idea about um, you can't be sort of a feminist and wear a corset, I, I think making your own choice and not and going kind of mm-hmm. choosing to wear what you want to wear is the most feminist act that you can have, right? And I think even if you historically, this idea that um, women despite all of the complaints against it that are men and male doctors are choosing to wear what they want to wear in in sort of opposition to what they're being told to do. So the complaints are always sort of coming from the male sector generally, and women are still choosing to do that. Um, and so they're you know, there, there is, I think, is a tension there um, that uh, some of that is an element of choice, right? And um, choice is sort of the, if you kind of exercise your own choice at that moment, that is a very feminist act. And to get back to the, uh, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean example, which is a great example. I mean, it's still Kira Knightley in underwear, right? Whether she's like caught <laughs> in the corset or not, you know, it's still beautiful Kira Knightley. So, um, you know, maybe I'll just leave that at that. And, and I think it's like the, my response to a lot of the actress, like I understand like that, like a lot of actresses find corsets uncomfortable or even painful. I mean, I think that there's, and there's a lot of discussion of whether or not those corsets were made appropriately or fitted properly, which like, I don't, you know, without having seen them and or knowing, knowing what, how they were made, I have no way to comment. But aside from that, it's like, okay, well here, are, like if the actresses, like even, even if you assume that they were made properly and fitted properly, and these, it was just not a thing that they enjoyed, but doesn't necessarily mean that like this particular practice or this particular article clothing, clothing is therefore damaging or detrimental to feminism or society or whatever. Because I think so often when those, those 
I think that those interviews with, with actresses talking about the experience of being corseted and talking about the experience of being in historical fashion, which I also find interesting in that that is very rarely comes up in me- interviews with me- like actors, <laughs> um, men that are also in these historical dramas, which is a you know, separate discussion, because it like, but it feels like those interview questions are often taken, whether they're in context or out of context, as like this particular person or this particular group of women did not like this thing. Therefore, it's wrong for everyone. And I think that's that's the part that I take the most issue with personally, especially like having seen the vintage community and like on Instagram and all over the place. And it's like, in my experience, people who wear historical fashion on a regular basis are often the people who are the most introspective and aware of like the political and social contradictions kind of that like that practice kind of produces. I agree with you uh, definitely on that point. And the other thing too, I mean, if you think about it, just if you take something that's maybe less controversial, although there is controversy around it, something like wearing a bra, right? So Mm -hmm. it has become politicized, but also, you know, just average everyday people feel very differently about a bra. There are women who will not under any circumstances wear underwire or who will wear a sports bra only because it's like underwire is the most uncomfortable thing. And there are plenty of people who wear underwire every day and don't have a problem with it, right? And so, again, taking that one example that happens to be a prominent individual, Wearing something for a role that they are maybe not used to doesn't necessarily mean that that experience speaks for everyone's experience. Oh, yeah, I agree with you. I also think that it's interesting that actresses who, you know, wearing wearing a period dress in a film or on stage really helps you to um, really understand your role. I mean, sort of understand how to move, understand how to inhabit space and um, I wonder whether those comments are also really about the idea of the juxtaposition between, you know, the actress's body in the quote unquote real world and the actress's mm-hmm. body, in, you know, in the role and then kind of manipulated and taken out of context, like t- context, like, OK, yeah, maybe it is more comfortable to be in leggings and a tunic than it is to be in full, you know, court regalia. But at the same time, there is something about the idea of understanding embodied movement and actions and um, comportment uh, from different eras that it's, you know, costumes are essential to that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially because like when I one of the things I think about is like these are women that at least I have not seen personally interviews where they complain about, for example, Oscar gala dresses and speaking as a seamstress and like having looked at those dresses and particularly I follow the people who make those dresses. The vast majority of them have some form of corsetry or boning in them, albeit maybe not as heavy as some of these historical corsets. But like fine, like like even the Kim, the, the famous Kim Kardashian like dress where she's like basically looks naked, like covered in like, water and whatever. Mm-hmm. There's a corset under that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and apparently like <laughs> she trained for like seven months or something to be able to wear that thing, um, and she couldn't sit down um, in it. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know how they actually constructed that that thing, but that that I would say is like an example of the restrictive, you know, whatever stereotype. Right. And if it was her choice, like, great, you wore a really cool dress. You got in a lot of magazines for it. Like, it's now probably one of the most famous recent dresses, you know, around. But like, but we like, you know, I've never seen Kira Knightley, for example, or one of the other actress, like actresses in these dramas complain about the dresses they wear for galas. And I would, I would be surprised if some of the dresses they have worn, especially the ball gowns um, with the larger, like the larger skirts and everything, you need to be able to support that amount of fabric. Like that amount of fabric is can be quite heavy. You need things like I've made dresses like that where you have, you know, multiple feet, sometimes yards of things like steel boning, like and all kinds of supporting things that are that, that are those are all dressmaking techniques that come from corsetry originally. Like you just need that to make those kinds of dresses. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. Also, that's like the question I want asked on every red carpet. So, hey, by the way, how are you holding up in those high heels and that corset? Like, have you been mm-hmm. able to down today? Like, that's the one I want to hear, not just when you're wearing a kind of a period costume, right? Um, I also wonder if it's 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 sort of again that ability and and um to to look at the past and, and see that as so remote and not see the in our own society. And so we can pick apart in the past that we are unwilling to examine in the present. Um, it might be really interesting to kind of flip kind of discourse of the corset back onto current beauty practices, because that sort of seems to be, um, we're replicating the same kind of uh, dialogues, but just with different objects. 
Yeah, I think that definitely relates to, you know, our kind of move towards the quote unquote natural or organic, you know, as if natural and organic are not necessarily constructed. Um, There is a way in which the corset is antithetical to that. So maybe it seems like to bash the corset is to somehow go towards some sort of um, idea of naturalness, which I think is also sort of a scam. I don't know what others think of that. Well, that, that goes to Naomi Wolf's, um, like the beauty myth, where we assume that, like, you know, in our moment, that the, the bodies that women have is time immemorial. This is how our bodies look. Um, but, you know, we see all those YouTube videos where they show from like Egypt to the present moment, right? Undergarments shape the body and and make them you know, look totally different and ideal bodies of women, you know, are constantly shifting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, something like the corset really brings that to the forefront, that idea that, hey, we manipulate our bodies and like bodies from the 70s, right, of, of you know, these models look very different from, um, you know, bodies of models from, let's say, I don't know, um, the 2000s, right, uh, Kate Moss, right, you know, um, and ideals of, of the body or of, of women's bodies are constantly, constantly changing. Um, and it's so quickly. So I, I, there might be something to the corset. Um, there's this anxiety about bringing that to the forefront. Mm. It's interesting, too, because, it, you know, when you say that, it really makes me think about and Laura's point as well about this whole idea of, you know, the natural body, which we know the body is so heavily constructed, even now by diet, exercise, Photoshop, makeup, all of the things, right? There's like beauty is so manufactured even in today's society. And that the corset actually is in some ways a great equalizer because everybody has access to the same thing, right? And so you can approximate, you know, you know, genetics means sometimes no matter how hard you work out, how much you restrict your diet, you know, even, you know, to the point of illness and disease, that you may never attain that ideal of beauty, right? And so if we think about the corset as a as a mechanism by which um, sort of beauty was made accessible to varieties of people across class lines, it in some ways provides access rather than just restriction. I think that's a really interesting point. I'm also thinking too about um, the way in which the corset was an undergarment for such a long time. And then as, you know, as time went on, it became for lots of fashion designers, especially in the 80s, the the, the outer garment, right? That fashion kind of turned from the, the inside out. Um, so I, I just I wonder whether the sort of visibility of corsets now um, in high fashion, but also in, you know, the vintage community you know, and uh, related to burlesque or different forms of theater. Um, what we think about what we think about that, just the wearing your underwear outside. Oh, one thing that I actually found um, interesting, I don't know if it was at the Golden Globes or at the Oscars, Scarlett Johansson had a dress that like it was a corset that just had some fabric kind of, um, you know, uh, draped on it. Um, and it looked like the mesh kind of corsets that um, you wear often when you're just like starting to season and starting to get, um, get used to corsetry. And I remember being kind of startled by that. I was like, wow, she's wearing a corset essentially. Um, and, you know, I thought it looked great, but it, it was something to me that what I was not expecting to see on the red carpet, um, at least at, you know, this point in time based on, you know, what, what's considered fashionable, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, definitely that idea of the, the corset becoming um, the, the apparel, right. And it's not, it's not anymore um, uh, the undergarment. It, it is it is the thing right um that you're um trying to um yeah just highlight right. it, it becomes the yeah the spectacle rather than like the the like invisible underpinning which i think like i was thinking about this and i think this is like the for me it's like the difference between how we think about like the oscar dresses that are corseted which most of them are uh and these historical fashion like this, this historical faction where it's like we like i think most people like unless you're a sewing you know or in some fashion history person you probably don't know how like people probably don't know how most most of those like high fashion garments are made but uh in the but in the case of this like so we're not t- 
we're not having that conversation. We're not talking about how that's the kind of like, we're not talking about corsetry in that context. We are, but we're always focused on like this historical thing, because I think, um, like Laura made this point earlier, we want to, we want to feel superior or judge history to make ourselves feel better. Well, I have actually two questions that are probably related. Um, uh, so number one, um, the history of men wearing corsets. Mm-hmm. Um, what about that? A corsets. <laughs> 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 what about it? Because what men wear corsets. It happened. Yeah, they absolutely did. Like you yeah. know, um, if they had a belly or whatever, you know, like they they wore. You know, there's historically men wore corsets. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the Prince of Wales famously wore corsets because yeah. he got very hefty. He was large. <laughs> If you're at a computer, you can Google men corsets regency and like cartoons will pop up. That's fabulous. Um, Yes. And I I highly encourage all of you to Google those. Yeah. Yeah, Those are related primarily to the Prince of Wales and Prince Regent becomes George the uh, fourth, who was famously corpulent Um, (laughs) to the point where like, you know, he had some early photoshopping when his official portraits were done. They slimmed him down a little bit um, in the portraits. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's an interesting point to think about the idea that, the, you know, we think, of course, it's very gendered in the way that we think of other kinds of fashion items and accessories as gendered. But men historically wore tights and high-heeled shoes and a lot of makeup and wigs. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, women had muffs, men had muffs, all kinds of different things. And to go back to uh, Cheryl's original um, advertisement uh, for Orchard Corset, like in their description, we sell still bone men's and plus size. um, Mm -hmm. So like, like it's still a thing. No. Yeah. There's, um, I'll see if I can find it for the show notes. I'm not finding on the internet right now, but they're like some of the actually like at least some of the more prominent, like Instagram corset accounts that I know of are actually men in corsets. And I think some of that is historical, like historical men's corsetry for like the reasons that we're talking about. And a lot of it's also about, um, people with masculine defined bodies using corsetry as a tool to basically make their body align cl- more closely with who they feel they are. Quite a few of those people also are, are gender fluid um, mm-hmm. and identify mm-hmm. as like being able to play with these um, incredibly quote unquote feminine garments and um, sort of having that juxtaposition between that and let's say having facial hair or what have you. But I mean, this kind of like piggybacks into like the next question that I had. Like, so historically, right, the queer community, right, um, the BDSM community, like, there is, like, not only the relationship between fashion and corsetry, but also, you know, marginalized communities, marginalized um, sex communities, like, when does this start becoming a thing? Because, um, like, yeah, the corset as as being... um, uh, you know, underground in sex dungeons, dominatrix, right? Um, you know, like that, that it definitely has a history to it, of course, but, mm-hmm. you know, when did that happen and like, and why, you know, um, and that's a way of kind of taking the restriction and actually making it sexual um, and empowering in that way, um, which is a different kind of empowerment from, you know, uh, uh, aesthetically wanting to just, you know, wear it, feel comfortable and, you know, look nice in an outfit. I think there's probably two parts to that. I mean, two kinds of threads of answers to that question, which are probably interrelated. Um, one is about the history of cross-dressing um, and the fluidity of gender, which certainly involved uh, men wearing corsets to pass as women or to appear as women. For a variety of different reasons. And there are historically lots of examples of, of men who dressed as women. Um, you know, then you're kind of talking about the origins of drag culture um, and the ways in which, uh, you know, now you know, drag culture is a global phenomenon. So I think, you know, the course, it becomes really, really key there. And I wonder whether some of the culture in, the, in New York in the 1960s through 80s also relates to underground sex culture? Well, I, I, I am not at all sort of well-versed as that sort of outside of my time period, but I do know that um, certainly if we think about like sexualization of like women and corsets, I mean, there are in numerous numbers and it's actually really interesting because they become really um, useful um, source when you're trying to study corsets of the later part of the 19th century. 
there are lots of pornographic photographs of women in underwear. And so in their corsets and in their drawers. And that actually is something that is sort of a flourishing trade that comes out of France in particular, but elsewhere. So, so the idea of revealing the underwear. And I think this goes back again to sort of the underlayers. And then when does the underwear become underwear and how does it become sexualized? So I think there's a bit of that. Well, certainly in the 19th century, the, um, the carte de visite, which was like a kind of um, cheap photograph uh, was used by aristocrats, actresses, but also various different kinds of vaudeville performers and circus performers. And these cards circulated everywhere. And often they were cards of, you know, depicting women basically dressed in corsets and tights. Um, interesting fact about Empress Cece, she actually had these albums where she collected part to visite of women. Um, and she was very interested in um, women wearing corsets. I mean, that to me is really interesting, like the like the scopic element of it. Like, who yeah. are you doing this for? Are yeah. you doing this mm-hmm. for men? Right. Is is that part of the patriarchal myth of it? Um, are you doing it for women uh, to be like to, to you know, um, it's for straight women to show off like, you know, your body and to get compliments? Are you doing it for yourself? Um, so there are so many questions about, you know, um, like, yeah, wh- wh- why are you doing this? Right. And assumptions that, well, you're doing it for the male gaze. Actually, well, you know what? Let's like maybe take the male gaze out and talk about, you know, femininity. And, you know, it's this related to makeup, culture and all that kind of stuff. Like women who relish in femininity and don't give a fuck about w- what men think. Right. Um, and they're not doing it to attract men. They're doing it because it makes them feel good. Um, and it's part of like, you know, ritual and um, self-care and self-love. Mm-hmm. Um, so like removing that assumption that, you know, uh, women are doing this for the male gaze, which would make it inherently anti-feminist. Um, why don't we take out that that piece and go, well, what if it what if it's just for me? Yeah. And I think when you look at, I mean, at least when I look at, you know, the various like pinup accounts or like corsetry accounts or like vintage fashion accounts that I follow, like if you just look at their audiences, yes, there's guys in there because, you know, people on the internet, but like the vast majority of their audience, especially if I look at a lot of their posts, it's like who interacts most? It's other women. And like, obviously don't know their sexual orientation, don't know what brings them there. But it's I like I see that as a very like femme in whatever that means to you, like femme oriented community. And actually, I see more often than not, like male, like people that are there to like satisfy the male gaze often get booted, actually. I was thinking about. So I think this like shift between like the uh, course of becoming like an undergarment to like outer, it was sort of like not outerwear, it's not a jacket, but more visible. <laughs> like, I wonder how that kind of like, I wonder if maybe like the resurgence we're seeing and sort of these like discussions with actresses and the like about corsets is something about like, I believe Cheryl, you brought this up earlier. It's like, this is, this is like about corsets are, are about like body modification and artifice to a certain point. And it's like, I wonder if there's some kind of like cultural discomfort with making the art, like the artificial aspects of femininity visible because you can't, I remember I was thinking about this particularly, like I was rewatching the marvelous Miss Maisel mm-hmm. and they make a big deal in that show. I generally love it, but they do make a big deal in that show about the fact that she wears a girdle. Now, a girdle is not exactly the same thing as a corset, even though they're both kind of similar shapewear kind of intention. And there's a scene where basically she's powdering the red marks that are left behind by her girdle and her husband, like, and, and her husband remarks upon this while well, her now kind of ex-husband this show's complicated, regardless. But basically, the whole point is like he had no idea. Some somehow he had no idea. Women wore shapewear is the implication of this scene. And like, first of all, that that's not that's not possible. You would have had to have never seen a your wife na- like like they had just had sex, and I was like, wait, but you just took her clothes off, and this is now a shock. Like it's it's confusing. I guess maybe he's aware, but he doesn't like understand. Like I. It's weird. It's just I would weird. like to reveal from my personal family history uh, uh, a little uh, funny anecdote. My, so I come from a, a Jewish a New Yorker um, family, and my grandfather uh, started a girdle business in uh, the 1960s, and it actually ended up failing. But and this was in the Orthodox Jewish community, um, and you know this was a, a, a religious man, you know, like involved in making 
corsets, right? Because it was considered, you know, textiles and whatever, you know, to make business. Um, So if within that community, it was like not a big deal for my grandfather (laughs) to like, you know, try to start a business like of making um, women's course, uh, uh, women's girdles. Girdles were just a thing, you know, and like, I know my family, like my mom always wore a girdle. Like it, it was never something mm-hmm. that was considered restrictive. It was always like, if we're going to something fancy, well, you wear a girdle because like, you know, it just makes your, it makes things look not, like nice and, and smoother. Um, it's, this, so, yeah. so, yeah. it's like Spanx. But that exactly. Yeah. But that Spanx, com- yeah, yeah. yeah. Spanx are girdles. Yeah. But that completely girdles are sorry. Comfortable <laughs> I, I would just say that, that like a, a more re- a retro girdle, I think, is actually much more comfortable than Spanx. Spanx kind of yeah. like right, like I, I agree. Spanx are weird. But I, I that's, really <laughs> that's like overflow of the of the like um the back fat thing. But that's, mm. yeah, Cheryl, that, that totally reminds me of my family as well. I'm I'm a New York Jew as well, and um I think that but my my grandmother always used to say before she went out, she always used to say, I'm going to put my face on now. Um, and I think that that's, you know, sort of like, I'm going to put my makeup on, I'm going to put my face on. And I, I think there was this sort of idea of, um, you know, to face the world, you had to have some kind of armor, you know, your girdle, your makeup, um, your pocketbook, your maybe even your gloves, you know, a way in which you were kind of, you know, presenting your best self to the world. Which also, which, and just to, to say something again about um, Miss Maisel, and I hope I will talk more about that. There's that scene in the first um, episode, I think, or the second episode, where she's in like you know, kind of a leotard and tights, and she's oh, measuring yes. her legs, and then eighteen inches, right? Eighteen inches, right? So <laughs> interesting, like, right? Like, what is that about? You know, is that sort of to illustrate to us what she was like before she discovered herself and discovered her comic genius, or is that just what do we? Why do we think that's? And I'm not sure why that's in there. I'm not sure either. I mean, I think there's like these moments in Miss Maisel where it's like it is a show generally about like her finding herself in female empowerment, but there are these moments where it's constantly ref- it's constantly connected to fashion and patriarchy, mm-hmm. which I find inconsistent with the character that they've developed because the entire they constantly are making a point of she loves fashion, she adores fashion, and it's like I was just thinking. I mean, is that because we are so uncomfortable with the idea of a woman who finds herself and is empowered but yet still has to conform to what we expect of a woman right so it is that kind of be a strong powerful woman but you still have to look a certain way dress a certain way and we see this right always the comments Mm -hmm. are upon the way a woman looks if she becomes sort of a powerful force right so it becomes the way in which that can be sort of undermining her femininity that she can't be both things at the same time, right? It's, you have to give one up to be the other. That's part of that. Oh, I just go back to Mrs. Maisel because I think there's so much there. Um, uh, we have I, to just have a Maisel episode. Yeah, we do have to have a Maisel episode. <laughs> <laughs> there's such a disconnect between, okay, she's like measuring her waist and all that kind of stuff. And like, you know, we're, we're meant to just kind of be like, hmm, what does this mean, right? Um, in terms of female empowerment, et cetera, et cetera. But she loves hats. Like mm-hmm. one of the things I love, like there's a certain expression she gets on her face, like when when she's walking down the street, especially in in Paris, when her mother like just like gets up and leaves, um, and and she just like turns around and she has this ex- this look on her face, like like oh my god, you know, like um, you know, like look at that hat, you know, in this kind of way that like a a, a dude would go, oh my god, look at that lady, you know. And um, and I think that there's something something there like her. She's like the way that she is like so into the hat. I don't I, I'm still I still don't know exactly how to formulate my thoughts about it. But I know no, it's I, that I've noticed throughout and I love it. I do, too, because it's like I, I like that she like has this joy in fashion. But I think it's like especially for me, it's like I go back and forth of whether the show is trying to make a point of like you can be empowered and and feminine. Because I think so often when we see, I mean, like Mad Men, I think is kind of like this. Like there's a, there's a constant kind of like back and forth of like whether or not you can be feminine and it, especially in like a traditionally like high femme kind of way of like, say, like Joan from Mad Men and also be empowered. 
And are those two things in conflict or are they actually like mutually constitutive or maybe not related at all? Um, and I think like Maisel, this Maisel, like I, I, I'm not, I'm still not sure about the measuring scene. I find that weird. I think a lot of that is like, especially when there's the thing about, there's a similar scene of like the put it like, like uh, Lauren, you mentioned like the putting your face on kind of thing. Right. They do the same scene in two separate episodes with her putting on her makeup and doing her hair before her husband wakes up. Right. And her mother doing the same thing, you know, several episodes later. And it's very clearly like suggesting in those scenes, it's like, oh, they do this for their men. And it's like, well, that's not actually true because it turns out later in the show, her husband kind of doesn't really care. And oh, in some boy. ways, it, like he doesn't actually like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, doesn't he say something like, oh, you look like that when you wake up? And that's really <laughs> what you look like? And he was like, oh, damn, like, I like that, you know? <laughs> right. And it's like, well, then is she yeah. doing it because she was taught to? Is it, she, is it she doing it because, which like, I think the show implies that like she at least does it out of habit because she's taught to by her mother. But also, like, is she doing it for her? Like, very, like, the hat scene very clearly suggests, like, she is doing it for her. Like, even, like, she often goes out of her way to buy, like, a lot, of, like, bring a lot of clothes with her or, like, buy things that, like, the men in her life are actually telling her, no, you shouldn't be doing that. No, that's not attractive. All this other stuff. So it's like, she's also, like, seems to be clearly doing it because of herself. And I think a lot of it's, like, her relationship with her mother in both ways that are complicated, but I think also positive. Like, it's a thing that they do together. Yeah, I mean, that show is so much, you know, kind of a, a tension between, you know, performing the femininity that makes sense, right? And being transgressive, right? Stepping out of your comfort zone and being someone that you never thought that you could be. But I think part of the success of the show is the fact that she's super gorgeous um, and looks awesome all the time. Um, mm -hmm. And as sort of like an advertisement for 50s clothing. Um, and I think that that actually is true also about Mad Men. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the actresses in that were fabulous. But I think there is a kind of a sense of this sort of ideal 50s femininity that's being performed mm -hmm. in those shows. Not necessarily a bad thing, but I think that's one of the reasons why they're both so popular. Well, it's, I, um, it's like a fantasy thing where it's like mm -hmm. not just the fa like the fantasy of like, oh, you you stumble into like a bar and do this like drunken comedy scene and you somehow become like a world famous comic that's opening for Shy Baldwin. So there's that fantasy. But I think that's very much coupled to this like fantasy of you can look fabulous all the time and it's great. And like and and like you'll never get a blister from high heels or anything like that. And it's like I, you know, I, as some as someone you know in the sewing community where there's multiple annual contests and like fashion tags for recreating looks from Miss Maisel as well as Mad Men. Like I, I think that fantasy is appealing to a lot of people. Well, I remember when Mad Men like became a thing, and when you went to the department store, there were all these Joan dresses, mm -hmm. and like people started wearing them to work. And you know, like this sense of also like you know what is an ideal body type, right? Like started to become a little bit, you know, uh, the spectrum became kind of larger. Um, and you know, I remember at that point, like it was like heaven for me because I would go into a store and I'd be like, oh my god, there's a Joan dress here there's a joan dress there like this is exactly mm -hmm. what i want to wear to a conference <laughs> like, a, like red lip um and uh so it became sort of like standard at a certain point um and then you know the show uh ended and things like that and you know fashion is constantly changing and and all that but yeah the the mrs Maisel, the Mad Men phenomena of where you go into uh, a regular store, you know, and you see, you know, you can get at J. Crew uh, a wiggle dress, right? Um, and uh, yeah, like an advertisement for that that old older it, for that vintage aesthetic, right? And and why mm -hmm. we're still drawn to it, which is I think interesting because it's pretty. And not to say like better than every other age of fashion, but like it's it's pretty. And I think like one of the things I really like about like the sewing community and parts of the vintage community is like people are just like, I'm going to wear the decade of fashion that appeals to me or mash up like several different decades. And just like it's good. It's cool. I well, and I also think that modern kind of fashion presupposes a very specific body type. Right. And that absolutely you know, fit everybody. And yeah. so you know, I, I might go into the store. There are plenty of stores go into and find something that's going to work on my body because it's cut for somebody without curves or mm -hmm. I mean I'm like I have hips and a, a butt and boobs like I, that doesn't work 
necessarily or banana republic. So, you know, there are things that are cut a very specific way. And so being able to do that also allows you to pick and choose those things that highlight your body that you feel beautiful in, that you feel confident in, that fits your like shape. Um, Horses, of course, allow you to help alter that shape. So there's that Mm -hmm. as well. Sure. And I mean, the, the also one of the wonderful things about historical fashion, and I, I wish that I might have saved Carolyn and I had this fantastic text thread when I was doing a performance <laughs> piece um, that had Regency costumes in it. And Carolyn owns all of these wonderful Regency pieces. And so we were texting back and forth about like costume options and, you know, could I borrow the dress and could I borrow the gloves? And she was sending me all these pictures. And there was something, I mean, there's something very exciting about the idea of inhabiting costumes for the past, but especially Regency dresses or 19th century dresses that allow you to look a certain way, that allow you to, you know, to shape your body to Mm -hmm. certain kinds of other ideals, which is beautiful. That gets the idea of curating the past and curating vintage clothing, which is, which is a thing. Right amongst the community um, of of people who are into vintage clothing, that that you know you get you get the real McCoy, right? That that's always you know you can go and get like the Joan dress at the department store, but if you can get the wiggle dress from the 1960s, I mean, you're preserving you know this um, these pieces that otherwise you know might just go in the trash, you know, after you know someone passes away and and their estate sale and all that kind of stuff. So there's there's something like precious. Um, uh, about these garments themselves, which I think um, is interesting. They absolutely are. Like they're definitely precious. Like I'm always really excited when I find vintage that fits me. Very rarely does. Uh, but I think the other aspect that I really enjoy about, I mean, not just corsetry, but like vintage, because like for me, like corsets, like corsets occasionally are a means to an end to wearing a vintage thing. Rather, like, uh, but like I enjoy wearing historical eras that like I connect with because I am interested in the history. I'm interested in the culture. I'm often interested in like for me, it's also connected to like learning about and understanding the history of women, like in a way that isn't represented in, you know, most history cl- textbooks and most history classes that we're exposed to, except for apparently Carolyn and Lawrence. Things <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wish I had an, as an undergrad. Um, but like, I, I think it's, and I think that's a, like the idea of like wearing clothing as a kind of like lived historical lesson for lack of a better term. Like we've talked about a couple times in this episode. It's like inhabiting the fashion of a period helps you understand in a different way than understanding the historical facts and figures, what it might've been like. And I think that's a really cool, yeah, it's a really cool thing to like experiment with in your daily life. I agree 100% actually. And I also think it's interesting because in sort of fashion theory, there there are makers who sort of study the original garments. And one of the things is like, what can remaking a garment tell us about the embodied experience of that garment, right? Mm -hmm. Some vintage things you can, but if you go further back, right, your ability to be able to put those things on and understand they impacted like the lives of like the women who wore them, that kind of thing. Um, we can't do that. Those garments are too fragile, right? So the garments gives us the opportunity to rediscover things. And I've been very fortunate. I've been working with a costumer in England actually on um, a dress from the 18th century that is in a private collection. Um, but it was a dress that was saved souvenir uh, by the husband of the woman who wore it. And she wore it in the last two weeks before she died and she's actually she was a friend of uh, Georgina Duchess of Devonshire she's there's a very famous for a portrait of her her, um, her, her uh, honorable Mary Graham or Mrs. Graham but she died of tuberculosis um, and her husband saved this dress so like and this dress was something she wore in the last stages of her illness as well and it's still in the family so we're actually remaking this dress to sort of what can this tell us about her embodied experience of disease right like what what can we learn from the fabric that encased her right and so I think that that it allows you to connect. It also is a is a valuable tool for being able to understand the embodied experience of life in the past. That is, that so, is so cool. cool. I'm very envious. <laughs> I don't even know how to follow that up. Um, have we just resolved that? This is actually really cool. And Pirates of the Caribbean is wrong. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah totally. or at least the Pirates of the Caribbean is not representative of all of all experiences for all people, at the very least. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I do believe we've arrived at the part of the show where we have solved nothing other than apparently we need to have a Miss Maisel episode. Uh, Absolutely. So, Stay tuned for that, everybody. Uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us today um, and invite you to plug anything you might have to plug. Uh, we'll start with Carolyn. Oh, um, well, if you're interested about beauty and corsets and disease in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, um, you can read a book. It's called Consumptive Chic, A History of Beauty, Fashion, and Disease. Laura? Uh, I guess two things. Um, if you're interested in the uh, exhibit Artful Nature, Fashion and Theatricality at the Walpole Library, you can't go see it, unfortunately, because of the pandemic. But there is a virtual online tour um, and um, uh, also some um, images from the show if you go to the website. Uh, if you're interested in the idea of women in fashion and archival objects, my most recent book is called um, Women Performance and the Material of Memory, The Archival Tourist. Uh, and that was out from Paul Grave in 2019. Awesome. I will definitely need to check out uh, that exhibit. I'm excited about it. And Cheryl? I don't know if I have anything to plug. I mean, I guess um, uh, if you want to know more about me and my academic work slash my photography, uh, you can <laughs> access it at my you know website, uh, which is www.com. Cheryl Ash Spinner dot com. Uh, so check it out if you want to. <laughs> and Hannah. Uh, I guess you can follow me on Twitter at Hallie Rogers. I don't really tweet anymore. I don't care. Life is everything. Life is in me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Also, Twitter Twitter is my least favorite of the social media platforms, as we've discussed um, many times. So I won't Facebook. go into it. Okay, yeah, actually, that's true. That's because I don't think of Facebook as a thing that exists anymore in my mind for some reason. I mean, that's a ha- Anyway. Anyway. It's, yeah, well, when you spend a lot of time researching the things that Facebook does for your dissertation, you become kind of disturbed. Um, if you want to learn more about whatever weird things I'm sewing and or follow my cat, you can follow me on Instagram at just that nerd kid. As always, you can follow the show's blog at voxpodcast.com where we'll share posts for upcoming episodes and for you to join in the conversation. And you'll also find our show notes linking everything we've discussed here today. You can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, always at Vox Popcast. Uh, we're also on the YouTube now, and we'd really appreciate you to follow us on there as we try and make this show something approaching financially sustainable. It's not entirely clear how you always get monetized on YouTube um, or how YouTube works in general. I'm still subscribed and get notifications from channels that I've never gotten a notification from because voodoo science. I don't know. Uh what? Please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. And while you're there, leave us a review. It helps us uh, bring new people into the show, and we're always appreciative. Thanks again to our panel for coming to chat today, and thanks to you for listening. I'd also like to thank Maximilian at Thought for Music for our theme music, which is building ever so epically as we close out the show. Bye! Bye! Corset, a symbol of repression to those who are forced to wear it. But for me, who chooses to wear it, the bust enhancer and the hip regulators will hide the fortune my mother has given me. And as they do so, they will make me look like that truly unlikely thing.